not hard, just open your Bible and, and turn right. Genesis 3 is where we're going to start this morning. I want to talk to you about kingdom motherhood. I'm in a series on the kingdom of God and what that looks like and what that means. And understanding that we, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have become citizens of a kingdom. Everybody say kingdom. Kingdom. Now, everyone plays a different role in this kingdom, don't we? And one of those roles within the kingdom, and I want you to think about this in the, in, in the role that you play in the kingdom, is, is that of motherhood. And I want you to understand that this concept that dawned on me as I begin to chew on this idea. Think about it. Motherhood was designed with the kingdom in mind. You got that? And motherhood outside of the kingdom can never be what it was intended to be. That's, that's powerful if you stop and think about that for a minute. So if you're a mom and you're in the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you play a powerful role in the formation and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's all I want to talk to you about today, but I want to follow the history of it. And take you back to where it started. And it started in Genesis chapter 3. Now, do you know what's happening in Genesis 3? God blows the whistle. Everybody out of the pool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you been there and done that? Okay. It, it's time to say, what is going on here? Adam, where are you? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, Adam and Eve, where are you? Or where are y'all? Who does he ask for? Adam. He wants the top dog, doesn't he? Because the buck stops with Adam. Adam, where are you? And you know how this whole thing unfolds. That's, where the, that's when the finger pointing started. You thought your kids invented that. Your ancestral parents invented that. And they got it through you, Dad, and your sin nature that you gave to them that you got from, ultimately from your first father, Adam. Finger pointing goes along, goes back to the beginning of our history. Everybody's pointing fingers at everybody. And finally, God says, okay, here's how this is going to work. And he begins to pronounce the reward for their rebellion. It's one of the saddest chapters and most joyful chapters at the same time in human history because we find Genesis 3 and 15. And here's what it said. This is where God is telling the woman about the relationship that she is going to have with Satan who just deceived her. Can we pull that up, please? All right, here's God's pronouncement to this woman. Here's the relationship you're going to have. Now, remember, what just happened? What did Satan do with Eve? He deceived her. He, what's another word for deceive? Lie. Lie. What's another word? Trick. Who said trick? Yeah. It, he, he tricked her. He lied to her. He deceived her. And the best lie always has a little bit of truth in it, doesn't it? Did Satan's lie have a little bit of truth in it? Yeah, sure did. But did it, have a, um, did it have some poison in it? Yes, it did. And he used her. And the sad part, and I've got to be careful because I'll preach a whole sermon on this. The sad part is there was another person there who was not deceived. That was Adam. He knew the score the whole time, and he sat there quiet. But Satan chooses the woman to go after. And I find it fascinating from an observational standpoint. And God says, okay, you used her, 
to hurt her. I'm going to use her to kill you. Do you see that there? Look what it says. And I will put what? You're going to be enemies. Between you, this is Satan, between you and the what? A woman. And between your, what's that word? Seed and her what? Seed. Y'all are not going to get along. You used her to try to destroy her. And let me tell you how it's going to work out. Here's his prophetical judgment. And he, this is the serpent, he, or the woman, he shall, or the seed of the woman, that's ultimately Jesus Christ, he shall bruise your what? Head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see where it starts? But he, that word he there, which we know in what's called progressive revelation, we know who, who is he? It's Jesus, it's Yahshua of Nazareth, right? The historical person of Jesus and his title as the Messiah. We don't call him Messiah. Instead, we call him Christ. See, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. You could call it the saving Messiah. That's literally what, the, what those two names mean. The saving Messiah. So here's what he, That's who he's talking about, right? He said, look, you, you use that woman to try to destroy her. So I'm going to tell you how this is going to work out. I'm going to, from her seed, I'm going to produce one who's going to come. And yes, you're going you're gonna to bruise his heel. But he's going to crush your head. He's going to kill you. You touch the woman to break her. I have anointed the woman to banish you. And that's the power of kingdom motherhood. That's a power that moms wield in the kingdom. I don't know if there's a greater power than that. He has chosen you and he has chosen your mother to produce life. You see, Satan was after rebellion that would overthrow God. And he used a woman to start that. And God said, no, it's not going to end like that. I'm going to use that same woman. And I'm going to use her instead, Satan. I'm going to use her to destroy you. You thought you were going to destroy her. I'm going to show you how this works. I'm going to use the very person you thought you destroyed. And out of her, I'm going to bring one who's going to crush your head. Now, let me give you some observations about that. Uh, and, and I just want you to step back and look at this scripture. Is it any wonder, then, that Satan hates life? Just, just track with me for a minute. Is it any wonder that Satan hates specifically the womb in which life begins and is protected that what ought to be the safest place on earth is now a toss-up. Is it any wonder that Satan despises life? And because he despises life and despises the womb, because through the womb, his head currently is being crushed. 
If he despises life, if he despises the womb, then listen to me, he despises women. He despises mothers. Here's the other thing, the other observation I take away from this. And, 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 it's, and it's really rather simple, but it's simply this. I don't know, but I don't, when I look at this, I don't, I come to the realization that God's not in a hurry. Is he? He says, hey, this, from her is going to come this um, one who's going to crush your head. It's 5,000 years later that this one shows up. With me? And we're going to go to that scripture, matter of fact, in Luke chapter 2 if you want to turn there. God's not in a hurry. Do you think, let me just ask you a question. Do you think for 5,000 years God was sitting up in heaven sweating it? Saying, boy, I wish someone would hurry up and, you know, I, I wish a virgin would hurry up and conceive so we could get this plan rolling. You think he was up there sweating that every day? Listen to me. God's not in a hurry, and maybe this is for some mom today that needs to hear, maybe just one of us. If God's not in a hurry, maybe we shouldn't be. I don't know. Jesus never rushed anywhere. You ever notice that? He was never in a hurry. Matter of fact, his pace drove his disciples nuts. Just think about that for a minute. And don't be in a hurry. Talked to a new mom the other day. And she was talking about her little baby, 10 months old. He goes, yeah, and she's already walking. I'm like, oh, lady, <laughs> that is not to be rejoiced over. Push her down when she does that. You do not want that kid walking. <laughs> you know, on our last one, Jack, the kid said, look, dad, he's walking. I said, D- push him down whenever he does and tell him no. Because <laughs> as soon as he starts walking, all of our jobs increase a hundredfold. Yes, mothers, you get that, right? Don't be in a hurry. So this thing starts all the way back in Genesis. The kingdom motherhood, God's idea. Satan's idea is to destroy the woman. God's idea is to destroy the enemy through the woman. Am I making it up or do you see that right in that verse? Now let's, let's fast forward up to Luke chapter 2. And you know this <coughs> beautiful account of the birth of Jesus. Here's the he of Genesis 3.15, right? Here he comes, Messiah. Yeshua of Nazareth. He's born. Just, just a... Harmless, helpless little baby. And Joseph and Mary, being just righteous people, they, they do what they're supposed to do. They take him right to the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised and to be presented and to be redeemed. Because in the kingdom, in God's economy, the first, which represents the best and everything else that's to come, belongs to who? God. That's why he says that we are to give of our first fruits. You don't, you don't give to God after you've paid your bills. You give to God what? First. Why first? Because first says, okay, it's all yours, but here's a portion because the rest of it belongs to who? You. You give it to him first. And by the way, and this is not what the message is about today, but I can tell you, if you try tithing after you pay your bills, no tithing. You try tithing before you pay your bills, you'll be amazed at how God stretches what's behind. End of that sermon. Okay, so the first belongs to who? God. Here's the firstborn son. He belongs to who? God. So God said, here's the deal. Uh, Because he belongs to me, kingdom economics, you need to redeem him. And you need to redeem him with a life blood of something else. Obviously, you don't sacrifice that child to God. Instead, you dedicate that child to God. But something must die. 
And if you were poor, you're supposed to bring a lamb but if, or a goat, but if you're poor, you could bring a pair of turtle doves. So I want you to picture this. Go back with me. Picture 17-year-old Mary, 30-year-old Joseph, walking in with a bird cage and two turtle doves and a baby. Can you picture it? And they're in the woman's court, the, the second court of the temple. And they're coming to give those birds in place of their son. Because in the kingdom, the first belongs to who? God. And that's saying everything else that you open, as far as the womb goes, belongs to you too. So here they come. And an old man named Simeon. He's an interesting character. He shows up. He just shows up. And it's like he's looking for something. Maybe more specifically for someone. And we pick it up in Luke 2 and 25. The scripture says this. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he's waiting for the he of Genesis 3.15 to show up. And check this out. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I'm just going to say this and run because that's another sermon I could preach. Spirit-filled people are looking for the he of Genesis 3.15. I'll leave it right there. And because the Holy Spirit's upon him, check this out, verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by that same Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now that's interesting term because Lord there refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ refers to the anointed one, the he of Genesis 3.15. Are you connecting all this with me? So, In other words, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, you're not checking out of here until you've seen the he of Genesis 3.15. You're gonna, with your own eyeballs, you're going to see the Messiah. And now Simeon's an old man, and he's getting tired. He said, you know what? I'm, I'm ready. I, I'm ready to go. But I hadn't seen the Christ yet. So he knows this is, the, this is what's happening. Now check this out in verse 26. So he, he sees it. He has his revelation. So verse 27, I love this. And he came by the what? Capital S. And he came by that same spirit into the temple. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so this is a man who's filled with the spirit. And the spirit reveals to him this Truth, you're not checking out of here until you've seen the he of Genesis 3.15. And then on this one particular day, the spirit wakes him up and says, Simeon, get your robes on and get down to the temple post-haste. And he does what spirit-filled people do. He obeys. Off he goes. Now, this is me. This is not the Bible. Okay, this is Pastor Paul's thought. Might be worth nothing. I don't reckon it's the first time this happened to him. I think this man is used to obeying the, 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 the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I imagine there were other tasks and assignments that the Holy Spirit gave him within the walls of that temple court. So this was not new to him. So, oh, Spirit's got something for me to do. Robes on, sandals on, I'm down to the temple. But this was not an ordinary day, verse 27. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought 
the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. That's those two birds. Um, here's what happened. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, now we're going to get into what he said for a minute, but can, can we take the Bible glasses off? Uh, Devin, can you imagine being Mary? It's your first baby, right? Little, you're a little kooky about this kid, right? And you walk in the temple, and you got these birds, and you just want to sacrifice these birds and, and, and do the circumcision, and, and, and you just want to go home, right? And some strange-looking fella... Because I'm spirit-filled people, they can be kind of strange sometimes. Some strange old guy comes up to you, Devin, and, and takes the baby out of your arms. Now, what are you thinking? Well, it's a, it's a little, Joseph, are you seeing this? <laughs> you know, are, are you packing today? <laughs> you know, you got that sword underneath that tunic? And this old guy takes, takes Jesus, and look what he says. Here, here's the pronouncement. He blesses God. He gives God praise. And, and Joseph and Mary are watching this. And here's what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You know what's cool? Jesus' name literally means salvation. Yahshua, Joshua. Greek version of that is Jesus means salvation. So he's literally seeing salvation. He's holding salvation. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of. This is important, church. You've got your own Bible. Underline this. All peoples. This is key. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I have had this nagging cough for weeks. So, so, here, so he makes this grand statement, right? Now, what are you thinking if you're Mary and Joseph? How's that going over? First of all, you know there's some interesting things about this kid anyway, like how he came about, right? Angels, messages, running all over, Bethlehem, stars, shepherds. Wise men hadn't showed up yet. hate to disappoint you. They're not here. And they don't show up for a while longer. But anyway, all these strange things about this kid. But do you know what the old saying is? Familiar, let me try this with my English tongue. Familiarity breeds what? You know, after a while, it's like, yeah, I get that. But I'm still changing this kid's diapers. Uh, he's still getting me up at night. And after a while, you forget who you're holding. I don't know if that happened, but I wonder. And then this old guy picks this kid up makes a strange praise to Jehovah. And it doesn't end there. And I bet Mary wished it had after what she hears come out of this old man's mouth. Look at it. And Joseph and Mary marveled at those things which were spoken by him. They were blown away. Now verse 34, and it's up there on the screen. Then This is cool. First he blesses God. And then he blesses them. And Simeon blessed them. He blessed the whole family. And then he turns to Mary. That's why when Joseph told me we were thinking about doing that, Mary, did you know? I said, yes, that will fit perfectly. He turns to Mary, his mother, and look what he says. 
Moms, this is the last thing you want to hear at your baby shower. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign which will be spoken against. And it doesn't end there. Look at this one. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, some of our friends take that statement too far. I think it's a literal statement. How would you feel to see your son hanging naked, flesh ripped from his body on that cross? And when that chief of the soldiers thrust that spear underneath his rib and blood and water flowed, would you not feel it? Hmm? Here's an observation. Motherhood's painful. But it brings about a deep purpose of God. And I want to share with you two of those purposes this morning. And... <laughs> The meat of this sermon comes quickly, for which you'll be thankful. But I think that kingdom motherhood, as I begin to look at it, there's two aspects to it that are undeniable. And the first one is that kingdom motherhood is formational. It's formational. Um, in the kingdom, God in, invites the word into his reign. He transforms all of life. And the goal of the kingdom is to be personally transformed into the image of the king of the kingdom. Are you with me? At the end of the day, at the end of your life, we are supposed to look like who? Jesus, right? That's the goal. And listen to me. Our father, our creator is so wise that he knew that through our different roles of men and women that we would play that he destined ordained, if you will, for us to play, that, that we would need different influences. And some would not even need those influences. He would bring it in other ways. But I'm thinking about mothers this morning. That they would need certain influences to work as carving tools on the life of these specific women we call mothers in the kingdom. I heard a story of a fellow who was up in the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and he came upon an old Indian who would sit by the roadside selling his carvings. And this Indian was, was renowned for the, the lifelikeness with which he would carve. His specialty was wolves. And he said to this Indian, he, said, he held this carving in his hand, he said, I, it's, it's, it's as if I'm holding a a miniature wolf, I expect it to move at any point. He said, how, how did you come to the point that with a chisel and a hammer and a piece of hickory, you could turn it into something that is so lifelike, looks just like a wolf. How did you do that? And the old Indian thought for a moment. He said, hmm. He said, well, I just cut away everything that didn't look like a wolf. Right? Listen to me. 
The goal of being a citizen in the kingdom is that as we embrace our God-given roles, God uses those very roles to cut away everything in us that doesn't look like the king. What are you saying, Paul? Well, let me just be clear. A lot of times on Mother's Day, and I've preached those sermons before, we, uh, you must have thought I was 13. I can barely lift it. Uh, I've preached those sermons, you know, how mothers affect children. Have you been affected by your mother? Of course you have. I'm still a little twitchy, but I'm getting over it. <laughs> We've all been affected by our moms, right? But I want to turn this around on his head, and I'm going to give my wife the credit for it, because it's something she said last year when I interviewed her for Mother's Day. And by the way, if I, if I could, moms, go home, pull up the Mother's Day, I'm going to put this in quote, sermon from last year. That was me interviewing my wife. It's, it's gold, way better than what you're hearing today. But she said something in there, and it got me to thinking. So often we talk about how mothers change children. They do an impact. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But she cued me into this last year. Do you know they affect and change you as much as you affect and change them? Hmm? And have you ever stopped to think that's God's plan? Never cross your mind. I sat in a, we went to, it was a homeschool convention, but that's not why we went. We went for the discipleship aspect. It's a very heavy family discipleship, how to disciple your kids. And I sat in a, I don't even know why I went, I know why I went there. I like the speaker. I really like him, Todd Friel. And Jim will remember him. We watched some videos by this guy. He's great, gregarious, easy to listen to. Um, and it was, the title of his seminar was um, What to Do with an Angry Child. Now, I don't have an angry child because I won't put up with it. No, I don't have an angry child at this moment. I have in the past. Um, but, but he gave us like nine reasons that you have an angry child, that you might have an angry child. And, and you know, it was stuff from trauma, and that's true, looking, something's going on, um, could be you, that fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. But number eight blew me away, and he said this. You may have an angry child because you need an angry child. And I'm like, okay, he's been drinking too much Kool-Aid. <laughs> Who needs an angry child? Well, here it is. If you have one, you do. If you have a rebellious child, you need that child. If you have a child who steals, you need that child. If you have a child who lies, you need that child. What do I need that child for? To help you look more like Jesus. They're going to they're gonna reveal your flesh, and then you have a choice. I crucify that flesh, or I embrace it, and I beat them up with it. I'm either going to live, respond to that person in the flesh... React to that child in the flesh or respond to that child through the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, moms. God gave you your children not primarily so that you could change them. Listen to me. So that they could change you and make you look more like Jesus before it's over. Does that make any sense today? I want to share something else I found on Facebook this morning. Great place for sermon illustrations. Listen to this. Mommy, mommy, I need to hold you. I love being a mom. It challenges me to my core, and listen to this, and it pushes me to lean on my Savior. 
Motherhood points out my ugly spots, my shortcomings, and my failures, and shows me that I need a perfect Savior. God has blessed me and has given me the desire of my heart, and I love this little girl more than words could begin to describe. And underneath is a picture of my daughter and granddaughter. Right? What's she saying? She's saying she learned it from her mama. That God gave her that spicy little girl. Just like she was. Maybe more. To make Anna look more like Jesus. To make Anna come to the end of Anna. So that she could begin to embrace Jesus. God uses Myra is a hammer and a chisel. Chiseling away at that young mother. And when it's all done. Anna's going to look more like Jesus because of Myra. And her mama, Elizabeth, looks more like Jesus because of Anna. Am I making any kind of sense today? Let me give you one more. It is not just formational. And I want to explain this one because this sounds theological. I don't want to mess anybody up, but it's incarnational incarnational by the way do you know what we would have if everybody in the United States drove pink Hondas we'd have a pink carnation you'll figure that out later I thought that was funny (laughs) incarnational Uh, motherhood is incarnational what does that mean what does it mean to be incarnational? I don't know. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was what? Not anything made that was made. And it was life. The life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. What is it? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But then it goes on to say, and it's further on in this thing. So Jesus was there at the beginning, the Word. Then it says this, and the Word was made what? Flesh and dwelt what? Among us. And it didn't just dwell among us. And it was, he was there. The he of Genesis 3.15 showed up. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He showed up. We saw the word. He was incarnate. Literally means he put on human flesh like I put on this jacket this morning. He wore our flesh and he lived among us. And we praise God for that, do we not? In the flesh, Jesus has explained God. You ever thought about it that way? God didn't do it by dropping tracks from heaven. Instead, he sent a person to live among us so that we could come to know God. Emmanuel, one of his names. God, what? With us. It's called the incarnation. Literally, that word means the enfleshment of God. Right? But check it out. Reminds me of the little story this Little girl said, Mom, I'm scared of the dark. So mommy comes in the room and she says, Don't worry, God's watching over you. And the little girl says, But mom, I need someone with skin on. (laughs) 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. God said, you know what? She's right. The world needs someone with skin on. I'm going to send my boy. But listen to this. Jesus demonstrates the reign of, that the reign of God is incarnational. He engages the world by getting involved with the world relationally on the same level that we can relate. He came down to our level, the old Southern Gospel song says, when we couldn't get up to his. With a strong arm, he lifted me up, right? And showed me what living is. How did he do that? Incarnation, he humbled himself. It demonstrates the heart of God. And listen to me, that's what a mother does. The great preacher Bill Lambert said this. He said, the greatest thing you will ever do is tell the story of Christ, whether they call you preacher or mama. Moms, kingdom motherhood is incarnational. You literally show them who God is by doing life with them. You get down on their level. You know how you can always tell a mother? They're rocking whether they're holding that baby or not. Right? Those are moms. Uh, Their language changes. Moms can be silly and fun. They have a huge impact. By the way, that's why when the kings of Israel are listed, their mother's names are listed with them. That's That's the BC version of the football guy saying, Hi, Mom. Right? They're listed with the kings of Israel. They have a huge impact. And that's what incarnational ministry is all about, relationship. A kingdom mother is a model. They show us what Jesus looks like in the flesh. And we help that flesh to be revealed, rejected, repented of, so that the spirit can come forth. My mother showed me the fun side of God. My mom showed us kids that God is a God who loves a party. God is a God who loves to... Do fun things. God is a God who loves people, not because of what they can do for him, but just because he is love. We saw that from mom. And my dad, he showed us the terrifying side of God. (laughs) That this fun, loving God had rules, and when you break them, all hell will literally break loose on you. (laughs) I've often said that a mama's job is to comfort the afflicted, and a daddy's job is to afflict the comfortable. And my parents did that in spades. It's incarnational. This is missional motherhood. Children see, listen to me, mamas. Children should see and experience the reign of God through their moms. Yes? What does it look like, mom? What is God like? What is the aroma of your home? It should smell like the kingdom. And moms, you, you set that table. I guess at the end of the day, last thing I want to say is that motherhood is missional. God has a mission, and that is to reconcile the world to himself. And listen to me, moms. It's to reconcile your children to himself, and he wants to use you to do it. You are the incarnation of the kingdom to your children. It's the nurturing incarnational motherhood that reflects God's character. So I want to, I have a strange conclusion today. But I want to give you a video illustration of what this incarnational love of a mom looks like. And then I'm going to pray. 
and we're going to stand and sing the doxology, and we're going to go home, and we're either going to remember our moms, they're no longer with us, and say a prayer of thanksgiving, or hopefully, if they are here, we're going to celebrate them. Here's one mom's story. The year is 1936. Hitler and Nazi-led Germany host the Olympic Games in Berlin. In an attempt to promote a favorable image of Nazism to the world, Hitler has constructed monumental stadiums as Nazi showpieces. Berlin streets are decorated with Olympic and Nazi flags. No one could have imagined the horrific atrocities that loomed on the horizon. The year is 1942. SS official Reinhard Heydrich holds a meeting of Nazi government officials to present the final solution. At this conference, the Nazi officials agree to SS plans for the transportation and destruction of the 11 million Jews living in Europe. The Nazis established death camps in Poland and throughout Europe. The total number murdered is somewhere between 5.2 and 5.8 million. Roughly half of Europe's Jewish population. Millions were transported to these camps under the guise of a resettlement of the Jews to the east. The Nazis went so far as to charge many Jews for one-way train fare to their own executions. And often, just prior to their murder, guards had the unknowing victims send reassuring postcards back to relatives. Thus, millions of Jews went unsuspectingly to their deaths with little or no resistance. Solomon Rosenberg and his family were arrested and transported to one such camp. The conditions were inhumane, with long hours of forced labor, starvation, and unsanitary barracks. The camp had one hard and fast rule. If you could work, then you would live. But when you became too weak to work, then you would be exterminated. Rosenberg watched as his own father and mother well into their 80s were marched off to their deaths. He worried about his youngest son, David, who was slightly crippled and grew weaker day by day. Every morning, they were separated and taken to their work assignments. And every evening, when Rosenberg returned to the barracks, he would search frantically for his little boy, David, his oldest son, Jacob, and their mother. Once together, they would embrace and thank God for another day of life. One evening, the moment came that he had feared the most. As Rosenberg searched the barracks, his family was nowhere to be found. Finally, he discovered his oldest son, Jacob, huddled down in a corner, weeping. Jacob, tell me it isn't true. Did they take David today? Jacob turned to his dad and said, Yes, Papa. They said David was too weak to work, so they took him away. But Solomon asked, where's Mama? She is still strong. And Jacob, 
barely able to speak, looked through tear-filled eyes and said, when they came for David, he was afraid and cried. And so Mama said, don't cry, David. I will go with you and hold you close. And then Mama went with David to the death chamber so he wouldn't be afraid. That is the love of a mother for her child. And that is the kind of love that God has for you. For God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we come to you today thanking you that even though, like myself, not being a mother, it doesn't matter who we are today, everybody you've put in our lives, you have put to help us look more like Jesus, and so that in turn we could be the incarnation of the gospel to them. We could be Jesus with skin on to them. Specifically, we thank you for giving us moms who did that, albeit imperfectly. But Lord, all of it to dimly point back to you, a father with such a great love for his estranged children that he would sacrifice his one and only unique son. And you gave us moms to embody that love. And that somehow by loving us, causes them to look more like your son. What a good God you are. We thank you for the kingdom aspect of motherhood as we've looked at it today. May we not forget it soon. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.